Yeah, love your work, Paul. I think it's just um, uh, bloody awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Truly Australian way to end an interview. Thank you, Nish. I appreciate it. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. I'm excited to bring you this episode of Better Thinking. I talk with Dr. Paul Atkins, who's an organizational psychologist with a PhD in psychology from Cambridge University. He's quite well known for his work in acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, But in, in particular, he talks about his new book, pro-social, which is really an approach for enhancing cooperation in teams and using principles derived from social psychology, evolutionary theory, and economics. It's a great conversation about this concept of how human beings can work more productively together and work as a group to not only enhance the group, but also appreciating that it's already in line with the individual desires, wants, and needs. You're going to love this episode, and please do share this and and uh, you know let others know about this podcast and 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 this particular episode. I'm sure it's going to be of great value to many. Paul, firstly, a big congratulations on your new book, Pro Social, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nash. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about this book, how it's come about. Obviously, you know, the, the pro-social space, um, you know, it's fairly broad term. You know, what does it mean? Um, and maybe firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself and how this has come about. Sure. Thanks, Nash. Um, well, let's just start with the term pro-social. Uh, basically, what we're trying to do, what this whole project is about, is building better quality human relationships and building more effective groups and groups of groups. So what we've, what we've done is we've taken some pieces of psychology and some pieces of political science and economics and uh, evolutionary theory and we've kind of woven those together into an approach which um, is evidence-based and is very practical for groups to be able to um, improve cooperation. You asked me about my, my, how I came into it. So ProSocial started when... Um, David Sloan Wilson uh, met and worked with Eleanor Ostrom, who's a Nobel Prize winning political scientist who had um, basically developed eight design principles that were needed to be in place in order for groups to function effectively. I can talk a bit more about that later as we get back to it. Um, So he worked with Lynn Ostrom. Together they generalised Lynn's design principles to be applicable to all groups. What David recognised was that um, basically any group that wants to cooperate needs to have these things in place, these key ideas. So he worked with Lynn uh, and then he paired up with Steve Hayes and a bunch of other people from uh, the acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training space uh, to help explore some of the behavioural technology that might be needed to actually implement these core design principles with groups. And then shortly after that, I came along and got involved um, and I was fascinated with the project. Um, I've been an organisational psychologist for 25 years. Most of my career has been about leadership and management and 
communication skills and conflict resolution and so forth. So I've just got this really deep interest in helping people have better relationships with others. I saw the need for us to develop training. So I've developed facilitator training packages that uh, allow people to learn about prosocial. And I also took the lead on on writing the book, which is what you mentioned, so to describe the process. So it's just been a real joy to me to be involved with this project. It feels like it's the kind of coming together of a whole lot of strands of my life, actually. It's really interesting to me, this idea of how we can best work together. I just finished reading a book recently, Sapiens, which, mm-hmm. you know. Wonderful book. Oh, mm. it's absolutely fascinating. One of the mm. things that kind of jumped out at me in, in particular was this idea about, you know, if we took a, I think the, the example was something like an orangutan um, uh, and, you know, put myself against mm. an orang- orangutan, it would rip me apart, you know, one-on-one. I would get destroyed. And I'm not sure if it's a baboon or a orangutan. I can't remember what the author used. But if we took 50 of us, you know, humans versus, you know, orangutans or baboons, they would once again absolutely annihilate us. There was a bit of a, you know, I suppose part of the thesis in that book was the difference is is that orangutans or baboons start fracturing socially at around the, uh, the number 50 so, you know, hierarchies start to break down and, you know, there, there, there's different dominant structures and, you know, uh, how, how they lead and so on and so forth. As we human beings have this amazing capacity, um, this is probably what you're talking about in terms of what, what Lynn's um, work, work has been on mm. some of these factors that, that mean that human beings can come together and work together um, better than their, their other primate sort of um, counterparts. Um, so, it's, yeah, you know, the, this sort of space of, of working together is just absolutely enthralling. I think it's amazing. Yeah, I'm actually really delighted you brought in that example because I think Yuval Noah Harari's book really clearly illustrates the importance of language in that process and you're absolutely right. That is exactly what Ostrom's work did was to identify the kind of absolute core agreements that a group needs to have in place in order to cooperate effectively. So Ostrom was writing in response to a dominant economic worldview, which you could you could kind of say it's homo economicus, if you like. It's a particular view of, a hum- of humanity as being self-interested and, well, selfish, basically. Sure. Um, and this view pervades economics over the last 50 years and it also therefore pervades public policy and yet it's utterly and completely wrong and so that's why she won the Nobel Prize for basically showing that um, unless you have the sort of extraordinary conditions where people aren't allowed to talk to each other or they're openly hostile, people can and sometimes do uh, form agreements which allow them to cooperate <laughs> incredibly effectively. I mean, I see you smiling. What a strange concept. I know. It, it seems like, uh, wow, isn't that revolutionary? And I have wondered, you know, wow, is that Nobel Prize worthy? But it is against the backdrop of a huge counter narrative which has actually dominated the world. It's extraordinary. And to our detriment, um, it's an interesting example of how evolution can take us where we don't want to go. We've got evolution, if you like, of 
our culture in the direction of this kind of neoliberal particular way of viewing the world, which has been selected for by certain conditions but does not serve the majority of us well. Mm. And there is that sort of leaning towards individualism, right? When, when, when in actual fact thought popped into my head around the idea of, you know, MySpace or Facebook. Mm. Originally it was about my page, you know, and everything about me, but, you know, what won out was in actual fact groups, you know, that, that as much as we all like to have that individualism about mm. ourselves, we, we actually want to be part of a group, you know, or yeah. part of an event, you know, am I interested in going to this event or will I be participating? Who do I like? What is my group? It ends up being, you know, more about my group rather than, me, um, well, that, yeah. that, that, that's what it appears like anyway. I think it's one of, one of the sort of learnings I got from writing the book, but, and I'd contacted this idea over many years, was there is no me separate from <laughs> others, you know. Like I am utterly a part of my social context and, um, you know, the whole idea of an individual, individual means if you look at the root of it, it means indivisible, like a sort of fundamental unit but we're not. If you look from the point of view of multi-level selection, which is the evolutionary theory that the book is based on, it's groups all the way up and down. You know, I am already a group of conflicting thoughts and ideas and emotions, um, which some of which have a voice at some times, others only occasionally. Um, I am my every word I'm using. I've learned from someone else, and every concept, you know, even being in the presence of you right now is shaping how I'm responding. It's just we are. We live and breathe in a social space and we're evolved to live and breathe in a social space uh, and to actually care for others, not just um, exploit others for what we can get, which has been, the, I think, the dominant narrative for quite some time has been um, this sort of belief that what people primarily care about is their own um, outcomes and and um, individual well-being separate from others. But it's just not true. Empirically, if you look at um, even pre-verbal children are thinking socially, they're taking actions that indicate they're not only aware of um, socially helpful and unhelpful actors in the, in the um, system, but they actively pre- preference... Um, more social, pro-social actors, you know. So this is experiments with little puppets and things that are done with uh, pre-verbal, um, even babies. So we can talk some more about that if you like. Yeah, please, please. There's a particular piece of research, and please correct me if, if, if I'm wrong here, and you may have come across it, you probably have, where uh, looking at sort of how people relate to each other and, and using mice as, 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 as an example, um, where there was a larger, uh, a larger mouse and a, and a smaller mouse and they, they, they tend to kind of play like mm-hmm. human beings do where they wrestle with each other. Maybe I've even heard this from me, I'm not sure. Um, and they wrestle from each other uh, and obviously the dominant mouse or the larger mouse wins. And so you take the you know, mice apart and put them back into into the um, uh, box again. And what develops from that is the superior or, or more dominant um, mouse has to be asked by the submissive um, or smaller mouse to play. Mm-hmm. And then the large one gets to kind of ask, uh, gets to either accept or, or, or deny. Uh, and obviously, you know, they, they both want to play, so um, it accepts on this occasion and they play again. 
no no um, surprises there. The large mouse wins again and pins pins the little one down. But what they found is that you know on the third or fourth uh, um, play session, the little one pins the large one down, um, and it's kind of this fascinating thing of you know how does this occur? And in actual fact, what what, what the researchers have found is that if the large mouse does not allow the little one to pin um, uh, him some of the time, and it's about 30% of the time, the little one will stop asking to Mm. play. So there's this inherent natural thing that's going on inside us that that says, I need to be pro-social, you know, to to, to have others around because this is a biological need. Um, And I think all of us who have been good at something in our lives, we've we've thrown a game. You know, I mean, I obviously I do it with my my daughter all the time when we play Uno. um, (laughs) But at the same time, I, you know, will beat her as well. But there's there's something about whether it's teaching or, 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 or sort of an inherent biological want for her to smile or to be you know, happy about that. Mm. I will throw plenty of games. I'm sure all parents have, um, but it's quite interesting because we do this with friends. Yeah, yeah, it's a great example, isn't it, of um, of this basic evolutionary pressure, if you like, that there's always two sides to a relationship, and we need to take care of the other in that process. Otherwise, the relationship is going to break, and we are utterly relational beings. So mm. um, I think it's a beautiful example. I've heard similar stories with rats and um, certainly in higher primates and so forth, there's much more sophisticated examples of sharing and cooperation. And um, it's just not the case that animals act purely for their self-interest because, or to look at it another way, their self-interest is often aligned with the interests of others because of the need for our deep, deep need for social connection. And where where do you say this um, sort of comes from in your research? Uh, you've obviously drawn on a number of dis- different disciplines. Mm. Um, can you talk us through about how these these um, you know, disciplines come together, or you know, what's the explanation of that the individual need, in actual fact, is more often than not aligned with you know others' needs or the group need? Sure. Well, I think um, in terms of pro-social, what it's, it has three main kind of bases in terms of literatures that it draws upon. Our fundamental worldview is evolutionary. And what I mean by that is that um, we're interested in um, variation, selection and retention of behaviour in particular – I mean, most people think about evolution as being kind of genetic evolution. Uh, Genes vary, particularly successful genes are selected for and retained through the uh, hereditary processes. Uh, But the same thing, what's become really clear in evolutionary theory over the last uh, decades is that uh, the same sorts of processes are occurring in individual behaviour and also in cultural evolution. So we're informed by this basic idea that uh, there's a high degree of variability and that things that work in terms of what matters to us are selected for and retained. So that sort of runs through everything that we do. What's an example, my apologies before you... Sure. What's an example of the cultural, um, you know, I suppose variation or or, or selection that you might see? I think one of the examples would be the one I gave earlier, for instance, the selection of a particular narrative about who we are 
um, for instance, uh, or, you know, climate change is an interesting one too, that um, when you consider why is it that, well, I'm going to display my biases here, but I think it's probably most people are aligned with this, why is it that climate change has been denied for so long? Um, it's a pretty clear example of a particular story that's worked for a subgroup of the population that is in power. And so they have the means and ability to push that particular story. So that's an example of how um, there can be variability in even what's seen as the truth, the story about the truth, sure. and how one particular story can be selected because the conditions are right for that story to be retained and promulgated through social media or through uh the Murdoch Press. Sure. Um, so, uh, not mentioning not any mentioning names. any names, of course. No, I'll probably get sued for that. <laughs> Maybe I should take that out. Um, but it's so anyway. That's an example of cultural transmission of a particular idea. Of course, science is a is a counter narrative to that too, and um, it draws upon um, ideas of objectivity and replicability and so forth. So, right throughout history. Um, different stories about who we are and what we want and what we care for have been evolving, basically. One of the things that I find intriguing about pro-socialists and why I like the fact that it's based in this really solid science of evolutionary theory is that it points to the possibility of conscious evolution of our society, that we might actually, you know, if we can create stories of homo economicus or or other stories of who we are, then we can create new stories. And um, they I've think never that heard that term. That that that's just um, you know kind of hit me. You know the yeah. conscious evolution. Absolutely. You know yeah. how how much of evolution we are a part of. It's not just me procreating and and mm. passing on. Uh, you know the, the the product of my parents and their parents and you know maybe part of my environment but more so about what I consciously think about um that's the way I'm hearing it the yeah. way I consciously organize my ideas the 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 the, the amount of um, time I spend you know making myself aware or educating myself the way I behave and 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 um you know treat others etc yeah yeah that's a I mean we're all part of this process um I think this is one, re, you know, we, we tend to look to the government, for instance, to lead us in particular directions, but I think it is more helpful to think of a whole lot of narratives that are competing for space, a whole lot of stories that are competing for space. If you look, even since the bushfires in Australia, it's now the selection conditions for a particular story around this, we're on the cutting edge of climate change here in Australia. Um that story has started to gain momentum. So the selection conditions are there for that story to be repeated and shared between us. And as a result, it's starting to really gain hold. Maybe the story about animals and animal welfare, which has really just been nowhere in the whole environmental discussion until recently. Mm. Uh, but now people are actively thinking about that. So, you know, you've got these um, variants, if you like, in the population of memes that have been struggling for expression, but now the selection conditions are right that they can be replicated. So I tend to think of all of what we do as being 
situated in this in multiple streams of evolution. You asked about the the different perspectives. Mm. Um, what's interesting about this evolutionary perspective is that it occurs in multiple streams. So I've already talked about genetics, there's epigenetics, there's behavioural stream, there's a symbolic stream, there's a cultural stream. So in all of those spaces, there's constant variation, selection, retention. But it's also occurring at multiple levels. Uh, the distinction between individual behaviour and cultural behaviour, you know, shared behaviour is one level distinction. But you can make finer grain ones. You can say... Um, you know, there's an evolution at the level of me as a person, there's evolution at the level of Canberra, you know, that's evolving at the level of um, maybe a team that I'm part of, that's evolving. So all the way up and down, there's groups and groups of groups and groups of groups of groups. So what is key in all of those levels is purpose in one way or another. Because purpose, uh, the way we think about what matters to us, call it values, call it purpose, call it um, our aims, whatever you call it, they form the selection conditions for for behaviours to be replicated, right? If, we're, if our purpose is to make heaps and heaps of money and be individually successful, we get selection for homo economicus. If our purpose is to create a society where people can breathe the air, then we get selection for very different cultural uh, memes. So purpose runs through everything, which is why the second part, well, first of all, that was how um, David and Lynn developed the first core design principle is shared identity and purpose. Without shared identity and purpose, you can't have genuinely collective action because it's not aligned, which has got individuals working against one another. But it's also, purpose is also fundamental to act, which, you know, is basically a, a, um, a functionalist theory of, of, of therapy. Um, we're not interested in what's true in some objective sense. We're focused on what's workable, what's what what helps us move in the direction of what really matters. So this conversation about what really matters and how do we get there together is um, is evolution in action from our perspective. So I just I just briefly though I, we sort of jumped around there, but for the listener, three main bases of prosocial are evolutionary theory, Lynn Ostrom's work on the commons, which I can talk a little more about if you like, Please do. and um, this particular approach to behaviour change, which um, uh, some people know as acceptance and commitment training or therapy, others know as contextual behavioural science. Mm. Maybe we can step into uh, Lynn Ostrom's work. Sure. <clears throat> so she um, she studied groups all around the world that uh, managed what she called what the economists call common pool resources. Basically think of it as the commons. So these are spaces where there are shared resources like fisheries or water supplies and so forth. In 1968, there was an article published in Science by a man called Garrett Hardin, who's an ecologist, and um, he, he called the article the tragedy of the commons. And this became an extraordinarily dominant metaphor in, in economics. The idea was that if you... Um, have a pasture where uh, farmers are free to put as many cows as they like, that they will inevitably, invariably, inexorably put more 
cows on the on the land than can be managed because it's in their individual self-interest to put as many cows on the land as possible. Therefore, I can't remember the exact language, but it's something like inevitably they will rush towards doom or something like that. <laughs> sure. I must get the quote right. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's extraordinary when you read this article because it's meant to be, it's in science for God's sake and it's like, it's like uh, written more like the Bible than it is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like these proclamations. Uh, and I think that's why it was so rhetorically effective. Uh, basically, it was seen as this universal idea that they would all rush towards overexploiting the resource. But that's, it's based on a fundamentally flawed premise, which is that they're not talking to each other and they can't see the collective interest. And actually, what Ostrom's work showed really carefully looking at groups that had managed shared resources for thousands of years was that if you can talk to one another and you can develop agreements, social agreements, then you can create the conditions where things can work sustainably for literally thousands of years or in the case of First Nations people in Australia, tens of thousands of years. And so what are those... kind of core conditions. That's what her project was about. And she identified eight that we've picked up on. I mean, there are others that that you could identify in particular groups. So what I'll give you is kind of our version, if you like, of of these core design principles um, because they have been slightly tweaked in that she was focused on just groups managing the commons we're interested in, for example, organisations or uh, groups of groups um, involved in uh, political change or whatever. So we needed to generalise them just a little bit, but I'll, t- I'll tell you about that. So the eight core design principles, and you can learn about these on our website, prosocial.world, uh, or on um, the training website, prosocialinstitute.org. Um, the eight principle where, the, where there's a... Um, a download there on prosocialinstitute.org that outlines these. Um, the eight principles are, first one is shared identity and purpose, which I've already talked about. Without that, there's no sense of us as a collective. There's no alignment of action. The second one is equity, basically, that there needs to be fairness in distribution of costs and benefits. So in a group, you need to have um, a balance of workload and and um reward for that and i'm not just talking about extrinsic rewards of sort of salary and you know little payoffs what i'm really focused on is social rewards the recognition the um you know social engagement social interaction learning opportunities and those sorts of things need to be shared fairly within a group for there to be for it to be sustainable uh, one of the strongest findings from organisational psychology is that if there's inequity, it's toxic and it'll corrode everything. The third principle is fair and inclusive decision-making. Uh, the aspect of that that I find most interesting is context where you can create real involvement in decision-making. So an approach called consent-based decision-making that uh, is becoming increasingly popular um, in groups all around the world. Basically, we're not arguing against hierarchy, but we are arguing that hierarchy comes with some serious costs. You know, top-down coercive forms of leadership uh, come with some serious costs. And in the spirit of, um, 
you know, the pragmatic approach that I mentioned earlier, uh, we need to look at those costs and see whether they're workable in, in our modern, um, rapidly changing organisations. So fair and inclusive decision-making. Basically, the idea, functionally, the idea there is that people who are affected by decisions need to be involved in the making of them. Otherwise, self-interest can thrive. Mm. All of these principles that I'm laying out for you, they they function to shift the attention and effort from selfishness to collective action. Okay. Uh, so that's three. Four is... Um, Ostrom called it monitoring of behaviour, uh, agreed behaviours. I'm starting to call it transparency of behaviour. Basically, you can't have um, an effective group if people can't see if others are sticking to the agreements, right? You need to be able to see it. So you, you can, I can think of tons of examples of virtual groups and so forth or even uh, in situations of corruption – it thrives in darkness, right? It thrives in uh, invisibility. So transparency. That, that word transparency okay. makes more sense, sure. Yeah. Um, the fourth one, the fifth one is um, is basically responding appropriately to helpful and unhelpful behaviours. So you can think of that as feedback because most of the time our responding is is words and we're giving feedback to people that, to try to encourage the helpful stuff and discourage the unhelpful stuff. Uh, so... That's one that's very different to the way Ostrom thought about it. She thought about it as graduated sanctions for misbehaviours. But it's really clear that if you look at work groups, you can't just rely on sanctions. You need to also have reinforcement in place. Mm. So that's five. Six is fast and fair conflict resolution. All groups that are values-driven, there's going to be conflict. It's inevitable. Uh, the key is to try to focus the conflict on task, not people uh, and personalities and to, um, you know, be comfortable with, to develop the skills to be able to be comfortable with conflict as being um, a, a clash of perspectives or differences of perspectives rather than something that necessarily needs to engage a fight-flight response. The seventh principle is authority to self-govern. And so what that's about is basically the way I like to think of it is the group needs to have enough authority to be able to implement the first six principles. The counterexamples, sometimes it's easier to talk about counterexamples. Um, unfortunately, here in uh, Canberra, we have the Federal Public Service. A lot of groups that I've done work with over the years in the Federal Public Service I say it's not unfortunate that we've got the public service, but unfortunately, <laughs> they. Uh, oftentimes don't have the authority in a team to actually manage those processes. So they can't manage their own conflict, for instance. They have to refer it to human resources or the purpose is so constantly shifting in response to the latest piece of media that it's almost impossible for a team leader in the federal public service in many instances to actually create a coherent, coordinated set of activity towards... Um, a shared purpose. So authority to self-govern is basically the first one that's about, not just about the internal functioning, but how the group relates to the rest of its environment, its context. And the last one, Ostrom called it polycentric governance. We just talk about appropriate or good relations with other groups using all those same principles. So groups of groups need to have shared identity and purpose. Groups of group, There needs to be equity between groups. There needs to be inclusive decision-making between groups and so forth in order transparency, 
effective feedback and um, responding, fast and fair conflict resolution, all between groups. They all work at any level. That's what's, I think, probably unique and new about pro-social is that our principles are kind of obvious, like a lot of any management techs would sort of converge on the same ideas in a way, but um, they have not been articulated in that way that allows you to scale them up or down. They work just as well for a marriage relationship as they do for a team, as they do for a team of teams, like one group that we're working with at the moment is Transition Network, which is a um, overarching body that brings together a whole lot of different transition towns that are trying to work more effectively in the context of climate change and environmental um, sustainability. And so there you've got basically a clustering of volunteers all around the world. How do you coordinate activity between those groups and those groups of groups when there isn't clear authority lines and so forth? ProSocial gives us a shared language. Those eight design principles are a kind of shared language for how we can um, cooperate more effectively. It's fascinating. I mean, if every single one of those items that that, that you uh, uh, discussed and explained kind of just immediately resonates. It kind of says, "Yeah, oh, of course, you know, of course." But they're not they're not very uh, accessible. Otherwise, you know, it's not some it's not a list I would just you know come up with. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, a lot of you know, time and energy has gone into seeing each of these factors and how important they are for this ongoing tension between, you know, what's good for the group versus what's good for the individual and having this in, you know, this, this intent or focus on, you know, the group and, 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 but also having enough space that from an individual perspective, it still feels fulfilling, you know, that that's mm-hmm. that fairness or if there's conflict that it's, you know, fast and fair, that it's re, you know, resolved, mm-hmm. there's transparency because the individual can get carried away. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of this feels like there's this kind of, um, the, 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 these eight uh, are based around trying to hold a particular type of tension um, yeah. to, to, to get that best outcome for all, you know, and, and it's not really the way I'm kind of looking at it from a metaphor perspective is, is it's not actually trying to hold a perfect tension. It, it, it's just being mindful of we're looking for a particular type of tension and when it kind of slackens, we go out and tighten it up and when it goes mm. and gets too tight, we slacken it up and it, it's kind of an organic move. Um, mm. I mean, that's just kind of what, what, what visually comes comes to mind. Uh, uh, for me, it's trying to kind of capture both the individual and the group or, or the individual within the group. Um, yeah. uh, but the group being obviously um, uh, as, as a collective and cohesive um, um, uh, entity working together for, as you say, that shared purpose. Yeah. Okay. I really like the way you Actually, it's delightful to hear you say that because I like the way you said the individual within the group because I think this gets back to the worldviews thing we were talking about before. In some, at some really deep level, we've been told that we're separate mm. and, and so that then sets up the idea that there's a tension between individual interests and collective interests, whereas in fact there's always one form of the story or one form of the view where actually our interests are deeply aligned. And so in practice, it's more often um, 
about finding the alignment of individual interests and collective interests and creating a way that we can be together where our interests are aligned. So it's about integrating individual interests and collective interests rather than... um, I mean, this is where there are sort of different views. You can view Ostrom's work as being about suppression of self-interest and favouring of collective interest, but I prefer to see it as um, integration of the two, of um, really honouring the individual and um, but but acknowledging that the individual is already fundamentally social, if that makes sense. Mm. That that alternative view, it's interesting because if you look in in biology and the um, the way that David has talked about multi level selection in terms of uh, organisms like termites and so forth. So David, I mean David Sloan Wilson, my sure. co-author, uh, who I believe is going to be on this program as well. Um, to create what he would call a major evolutionary transition where a bunch of separate organisms begin to behave so cooperatively that they function as a single organism, like a termite mound or a human body, for instance, because we're actually made up of evolutionarily separate organisms. Our cells are originally separate organisms and they just happen to cooperate so effectively that we can call ourselves a, a single individual. If we get cancer, that's where a a single cell is behaving selfishly. Uh, So this idea of groups all the way up and down, it's we are all groups, is absolutely prevalent. Um, So you can think of, to, to continue that metaphor, say cells within our body, you could say that you need to sort of suppress the individual interests of cells so that they can't just replicate randomly in order to have the good of the group. You could see cancer and the removal of cancer for, through that lens. But you could also say, I mean, cancer kills the host. Can, it's, it's the end of the organ. Mm. It's the mm. end of the cell as well. So if you draw your attention out a little bit, um, it's actually in the long-term interests of every individual cell to behave cooperatively within the body. And in that sense, you see that's a different story, what I, you know, Absolutely. But if all you do is focus on uh, my sole aim is to replicate as much as possible, you'll get one story. If you focus on my aim is to survive over the long term, then quite often it'll be a different story. And this is, I suppose, the the argument of climate change, you know, what we're doing to the environment on on an individual basis. It's really fantastic if I go out and have a big trawl trawling ship, you know, fisheries ship Mm. going out there with this enormous net. Each time I come back, you know, I've got X amount of, you know, tons of Mm. tuna or whatever fish I'm trying to to, to target. Um, And just by going out and and, and looking after my own interests, uh, through my lifetime I'll probably do exceptionally well. Mm. I might be able to pass that on to my kids and maybe my kids' kids. Um, this is kind of what's historically occurred. Mm. But eventually that cancer sort of shows up and says, oh, my goodness, you know, there's, there's either doing? something irreparable or, you know, we have to start treating this cancer and, and, and addressing it from a pro-social way because none of us are going to have fish. And as a matter of fact, forget fish, there will be a whole lot of other domino effects that mm. will end up taking us all out. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at how many – 
people later in life kind of question what their whole life's been about, you know, when they've acted selfishly for their whole life. It, it does not serve them well, generally speaking, for their for their entire life. And it takes a particular form of attention. And this is where I think, you know, you mentioned the book Sapiens, I think really describes this beautifully and hopefully our book does too. If you pay attention to how can I get as much as po- – how can I consume as much as possible for myself, then that takes you in one direction. Um, if you pay attention to the possibility of us all thriving in one way or another, then it creates different possibilities. Try and explain that. Try and explain that I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that, right? I yeah. mean, I'm hearing – uh, sorry for jumping in, but I'm I'm hearing there's this kind of space where I want more, right? Mm. I'm in this race for resources, you know, and 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 the more I get, the better I feel, right? You know, I feel more secure, or I feel more accomplished. I feel um, like I've achieved something, well, whatever it might might be. And there's this other paradigm that you're kind of proposing, which says, you know. But maybe if I share um, in uh, this pursuit or I make sure I look after my fellow man or my fellow animal um, or my fellow world, that I will get some uh, equally valuable return. Like there, there, there will be a reward at the end. Mm. You know, it's just hard for me to, to see that, right? Yeah. I mean – it's difficult for an individual to conceive that. It's it's like, what do you mean you're asking me to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not make as much more as much money, or you know, I've got to share my resources that I work so hard to get. Can can you try and talk talk through sure. that? Sure. The I mean, what you're really pointing to is this sort of fundamental dilemma of why would we ever be altruistic? You know, why would we ever mm-hmm. sacrifice for the good of the group? If that makes sense. And I think and th- there's also this. My apologies, jumping again, but yeah. it's almost like, but maybe I don't like some of the people in the group, sure, right? Yeah. You know, there's all this yeah. kind of self-interest that starts showing up. Yeah. You know, I, I'm doing most of the work. Why should they, you know, benefit? It's kind of like the the, the taxes issue. Mm. Right? You know, I shouldn't mm. have to pay more tax. Yeah. So again, I think, for, well, at least for me, I see myself. I'm going to speak quite personally here. Yeah, please. I see myself as having evolved from being pretty selfish. <laughs> Basically, I'm going to say that on it. You know, as a young man, I was pretty much all about my career, my success, my income, et cetera, et cetera. And the evolution that I've seen in myself has been that those victories are often a hollow if there isn't someone there to share them with, mm-hmm. if there isn't a deep network of connections to share them with. And so – to the extent that I trust that I can be loved, that I can be part of a community and so forth, for me that's a much richer form of outcome. It's a much um, more satisfying life to lead, to be able to maybe forego in the very short term some small economic outcome or even a large economic outcome and then to be able to rest in the peace and sensibility of knowing that I've done something worthwhile in the world, I just inserted that piece that I need to trust that I am going to be lovable, that I'm going to be accepted, that I'm going to be part of a community, that I will um, not be 
that others are not selfish. Because if I don't trust that others are not selfish, why on earth would I behave um, altruistically? You know, there's just no that it would be irrational. And this is where why I've emphasised the importance of the stories we tell about who we are. There's really good evidence. Uh, this is some work from Common Cause. It's a fascinating um, online report called Perceptions Matter. I can link to it off uh, your site if you like. And basically what they showed was to the extent that people think that others are selfish, they're much less pro-social themselves. So they, take, they don't take part in – they don't vote as much. They don't take part in community groups as much. They don't um, uh, initiate other forms of pro-social behaviour to the extent that they see others as being self-interested, right? And, and that makes perfect sense, right? Mm. If you live mm. in a world – you know, obviously we need to protect our own organism. The cell needs to protect its own integrity. The organism does indeed need to protect itself. And also the cell and us looking out on our environment when we see hostility and selfishness and um, aggression, what we get is fight, flight and a retreat into basically individualism. But when we see a, a, a benevolent environment where's the, where there's the possibility of reciprocity where there's the possibility of um you know harmony in one sure, way or another yeah, yeah. then we're much more likely to act for the good of others and and, th- and that's another way to view the core design principles is they create the conditions where people can't easily as easily act selfishly mm. why why shouldn't i throw rubbish in the river because everyone else is going to be throwing rubbish in the river, so it's going to, it's polluted anyway. So why should I stop? You know, it's yeah. easier for me to just throw rubbish in the water and get rid of trash that way, than it is to walk, you know, six blocks to to mm-hmm. put it in some sort of you know uh, place. And th- this is trying to gain that trust of no, we all, you know, it might be dirty and 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 and, and have you know filth and rubbish in it at the moment, but collectively we all believe in it's important to look after our rivers, so let's start looking after. I mean, I, I know Australia's done an exceptional job, and I, I do apologise because I can't remember who, who it was, but it's actually yeah, probably yeah. By, by hundreds of or thousands of or tens of thousands of people working together about the Clean Up Australia Day, mm. you know, that you don't go out and, you know, litter on our beaches or, you know, if you go camping, pick up all of your stuff, that there's, yeah. there's bins around, make sure you use the bins, you know. In actual fact, these days it's use the bins correctly, um, you know, don't throw a cigarette on the ground. Uh, there, yeah. there, there's this kind of collective, you know, consciousness around look after our environment, you know, and that's probably a higher order. Uh, it's probably not the right language, but a, a different level of, of, of awareness that, you know, a modern world allows us to think about yeah. um, yeah. Uh, versus, you know, other other pro-social um, you know, contexts. Yeah, well, you could call it a cultural norm and it's what allows us to cooperate on a vast scale. As um, you were saying earlier, you know, primates don't have cultural norms because they don't share language in the same way that we do. Um, so, Because that wasn't always the case, right? I remember driving from Canberra to Sydney, um, sure. you know, uh, when I was a young boy and you'd see rubbish all along the sides, mm. you know, people throwing McDonald's bags out and all sorts of things. Yeah. It was just, you know, what do That's you do with this? Did. It's in the car. Well, get rid of it. Yeah. And chuck it out the window. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to use your example, so we're at the point where we're still, I guess, actively trying to um, promote 
not littering, but it's basically become the dominant norm in Australia. And so now if I litter, I know that actually my piece of litter is really making a difference. Um, Whereas if, you know, it's like the broken window stuff that Mm. if there's already a broken window, people are much more likely to break another one. Um, People need to know that their activities make a difference. Well, we just painted the uh, facade of our our, our building because there's graffiti and, and, you know, uh, it's this ongoing uh, sort of effort to continue to go out and paint, um, you know, when graffiti does show up. Mm. And it's kind of difficult because some of our, you know, fellow neighbours, you know, residents aren't as as, um, uh, active in painting painting theirs. And so you can find, you know, part of the block that, 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 that looks a little bit more derelict and, um, you know, has had graffiti on there for, for, for some time. And then other sections where you can see a number of uh, other tenants who have, you know, all looked after their, 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 their space. So you can feel there's a, there's, it's more inviting, it, it's a warmer place, you want to kind of be in there, you want to avoid the others a little bit more. But it requires that collective because one painted facade is, is um, you know, uh, stands out almost mm. to be graffitied um, than the others, but in actual fact, it 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 starts potentially a uh, I don't know maybe not a movement, but um, at least a consciousness of saying, "Oh, that looks nice. Maybe I'll do that to mine." Mm. Yeah, I think it's a good example. I, I'd I'd love to come back to you asked before about why should I be. Social, mm, mm, yeah. And I was thinking, you know, you must encounter this as a therapist um, when you've got a client who's, you know, you're asking them what really matters to you and they come back with uh, a range of things which might include being famous, making more money, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, dominating at work or something like that. And you kind of, Generally speaking, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm interested to hear how you'd handle that. But in my experience, when you start to ask the question, you know, how does what really shows up for you in the space mm. of this? What, well, how does it play out? How workable is are those sorts of strategies? People find that they're kind of yucky in one way or another. They're not actually going to work that well in the long run. Um, so, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not naive. People can be awful. People can be sure, absolutely fundamentally, not fundamentally evil because I believe that we're actually evolved to be deeply pro-social. But under the right conditions, mm. all you can see is fight-flight response. All you can see is self-protection. Um, so I don't believe I'm naive. But I do think that if you create the, create the right context and particularly if people are helped to kind of notice what works for them in the short and the long term? Well, I think I think what you pose is 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 really, at least in my mind, a a therapeutic process of of you know trying to uh, asking a client to to uh, begin to ponder, consider, think about you know question who and what's important you know and and initially people will talk about you know the 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 what's important and. It, it can be very, very much like, you know, money and, you know, resources, et cetera. Um, I think when I talk about it from a process perspective, often clients require uh, 
multiple questions, multiple repetitions of the same question mm. to, to, to take that further. Um, for example, you know, if, if you did gain all the, that, that money, what would you do with it? You know, mm. and, and, you know, it might be, oh, I'd, I'd get that large house that I've always wanted or that nice car or whatever it might be. It's like, you know, um, and then, you know, what would you do with that then, you know, and really a fishing for, Who's going to be in there? At least that's what you're hoping for. Because most people, uh, if it dawns on them that they're just sitting in a mansion, um, that's a really awful place mm-hmm. to be in. And and I and I think you know it's no different to having a really nice meal, but having no one to share it with. You know that mm. there, there's that human need. No, I, I think I've, I can use the word fundamental need to share it with someone. Um, uh, not every time, but obviously you know in, in, in how we like to live our lives. So I think there's this ongoing process of continuing to ask that mm. question of you know, and then what would you do? And then what would you do? And then what would you do? Um, and I think it does tend to boil down to. I would share it. Mm. You know, I, I would yeah. share it with loved ones, or I would share it with others, with my you know, neighbours, maybe my street, you know, maybe my colleagues, or maybe my group. You know, the group that I'm interested in. You know, whether it be you know a, a special interest group, or whether it be you know a uh, you know a body that I belong to or I believe in. Um, you know, the, whatever community. Um, uh, that, that that's interesting to me. I think it tends to boil down. So therapeutically, I think it's this process of continue asking, you know, and then what, what, what do mm. you do with this? Because, you know, most of us, you know, when it, when it boils down, it's not money that we're looking for. Mm. Um, yeah. Because money, you know, uh, uh, plus loneliness, um, you know, money is pretty ordinary. <laughs> yeah. I think most <clears throat> of us in the end, we, you know, we want to be we want to be agentic in the world. We want to have an impact, but we also want to be loved and cared for. We want to belong, and that's pretty much kind of what things boil down to in one way or another. I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, you were focused on money in my career. Um, <laughs> you know, early on, I was actually would say to people, "I want to be famous." You know, that was a, a kind of core thing for me. Sure, and, and then to realise. You know how that was just a proxy for wanting to be accepted and wanting to be uh, appreciated in one way or another. And then, you know, like actually the appreciation of having however many friends on Facebook or whatever is pretty damn hollow compared to somebody who I've helped, you know, and been able to to work alongside. So... um you know, I really like your approach there as sort of and then what and then what because it's basically just going deeper and deeper what really matters here. But see, we don't have that kind of conversation on a societal level. We don't have the what really matters here. We're locked in left versus right and good versus bad and, you know, we're locked in these category labels Mm. that are obscuring the conversation about what matters right here? What, and how does it feel to 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 engage in these behaviours? You know, imagine if politicians sort of were allowed to slow down and reflect on what's showing up for them to prosecute a particular line that they don't really believe in anymore. Imagine how behaviour could be different. Yeah, is 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 that part of the challenge uh, around pro-social that? Uh, 
not taking the time to be considerate, to, to, to think about these concepts that we're, we're just rushing so much and, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a environment of rushing and, um, you know, where people are attacking each other whether it be you know socially or through media or certainly our policy makers are, are kind of being um, you know, crucified at, at any moment you know the, I, I think it was the most terrible job in the world to, to, to be you know constantly on edge about every word that you say it doesn't facilitate a deeper more meaningful conversation something that's maybe a little bit more sophisticated mm. something that kind of says why well, do you know, why, why do we want to make this policy, you know, such? And can we trust that the community is able to appreciate this and handle this and understand this and, and, and therefore not dethrone me? You know, can can I stick my neck out, you know, um, and, and, you know, in some sense risk my individual security mm. for the, the betterment of, of you know, uh, society, you know, and, and can I trust that they will see that, you know, that, that I actually am part of a group, you know, that that group actually does exist rather than the group I'm currently in, you know, that might, you know, try and, um, you know, crucify me. Absolutely. I think you're spot on, Nesh. Like there's two bits, I think, in what you say. One is the compression of time frames, and invariably when you compress everything down, we're going to go into a more reactive mode rather than a more considered mode that allows us to contact what's actually happening for us here. But the other thing is to come back to that earlier point that we made about um, your expectations of others shape what you do. If your expectation is that uh, any form of openness about your own individual vulnerability is going to be met with criticism or punishment in one way or another, the last thing you're going to be is open and vulnerable Uh, And yet vulnerability is where trust comes from. Like you think, what is trust? Ultimately, trust is knowing that I can make mistakes or be a bit of a deal in one way or another and others will respond with some degree of, well, I won't be deeply punished for that. You know, it's not that I'll necessarily be reinforced for it, but I won't be... Um, crucified for a mistake or a slip-up or something like that. It's it's in that sort of environment in a workplace that you you have trust. And so, you know, again, to come back to this point, you can see how deeply we are not individuals. Mm. Every action I take, you know, there's this silly kind of Western view actually that actions emerge from this inner causative agent, you know, like this little separate homunculus that's inside me. It doesn't. My actions emerge from what I think you're going to do in response. I'm basically responding to a history of reinforcement, right? And in that history of reinforcement, there might have been all sorts of pain and abuse and so forth, and I'm going to be responding in an antisocial way, or there might have been the possibility of trust, there might have been the possibility of openness, there might have been the possibility of care, and I can respond in a more pro-social way. Mm. Paul, obviously, you know, you've, you've, you've worked, I mean, th- 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 this book is really you know, the, uh, uh, the 
focal point of a lot of the work that you've done, you know, to date and, 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 you know, that, that, that goes far beyond, you know, just the work that you've done in organizations, but, you know, obviously worked with other, you know, incredible people. I understand you do, you know, um, you know, training, you, you, you work with organizations. Can you talk <coughs> us through maybe a, an example of how you've worked with an organization to, you know, I'm, I'm assuming they'd probably come to you and say, you know, we've got some cultural sort of challenges that we're facing or we're not kind of aligned to this competing demands, you know, where we're finding this team is, you know, butting heads with this other team. How can we put this all together? Can you talk about how you've worked with, you know, organizations, how organizations, you know, on, on, on the ground have applied some of these so that maybe, you know, others can learn from, uh, you know, examples or how this might look on the ground. Mm, wonderful. <laughs> well, I'm tempted to tell you about the examples I've got in in train at the moment because they're so exciting. Um, uh, so one of the groups that I'm actually, you know, better what you actually ask, <laughs> I'm changing your question, what you actually ask for examples from the past. We've we've done some great work with uh, – You can do so, current as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. Absolutely. All right, okay, absolutely. well, I might go with that for now then. So, um, I, I mean, generally speaking, what I do with organisations is I'm working with them to um, help improve communication so that they can explore each of these core design principles together. But I'm also trying to build – what you might call psychological flexibility, which I'm sure most listeners to this program will understand. I'm trying to build psychological flexibility to enable people to look at those principles um, and implement them flexibly. Because each one of those core design principles I mentioned earlier could be done really rigidly and really unhelpfully. You know, think of a conflict resolution process that relies upon really strict policy and procedures instead of skill in actually talking. Um, or you know, even even shared identity and purpose. You know, think of your classic vision statement that nobody pays any attention to because it's been lost in the words and the form rather than the mm. execution of it. So, you know, I work with um, companies to help develop teamwork. Um, I've worked with uh, schools at the level of um, um helping them to use the, the ACT matrix, which is part of our process is the ACT matrix, which basically allows people to um, really connect with what they care about, but also what they're afraid of, you know, their loves and their fears, if you like. And all of that is an expression of values. So this, you know, the whole point of the ACT work is to help people become aware of what really matters to them in the context. And that can sometimes be, you know, values in the direction of the collective, like I care about honesty or I care about relationship or something, but it can also be self-protective stuff as well. You know, I care about not being made to look a fool or um, mm. something. So um, we did some work with a, a school in Sydney, which um, uh, is already incredibly collaborative, actually. Um, it's a Catholic learning community. Um, and uh, they but they were very interested in sort of seeing if ProSocial could push forward this, uh, the level of collaboration among the teachers in the school. So what we did was we ran a series of sessions where we introduced the individual act matrix, the collective act matrix, and the core design principles, and then did a whole lot of goal setting around how can you be different in, in your 
uh, teaching teams. A lot of their work is done in um, collaborative teaching teams where they're sort of um, teaching a large group of students together. And so that's what we were targeting was the collaboration between teachers. So the individual matrix was all about, you know, what matters to you about being a member of this school, about being a member of this group? What's your individual interest? Getting that out there and mapping it. Then the collective matrix, if you like, which is just a collective version of the individual matrix. It's just, you know, what matters to us as a group, basically. What are we afraid of? What do we do when we're really stuck in our fears and concerns? What what could we be doing when... And that makes makes so much sense before you finish Mm. up there. It makes so much sense to go through the individual stuff first to validate that, to yeah. hear that, to appreciate it so that people feel heard, you know, yeah. and understood and therefore maybe, you know, make it a little bit more uh, or foster open-mindedness about, you know, there's also the collective that exists. If we if we just do the collective, we've, 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 we've um, uh, created a tension once again in, in that, you know, but what about me? And, and yeah. to hear both sides kind of disarm, so to speak, or opens opens ears. Um, that, that, that's beautiful. My apologies. Keep, keep, yeah, keep, no, keep that's going. A, <clears throat> that's a good point though, Nish. I mean, I'm amazed at how often people kind of rock back in their chairs almost when they see I, – I, I often use an online tool for the individual matrix these days and people can enter their responses anonymously. And you press a button and everybody can see what everybody else wrote, not just their values but also their fears and their concerns and the, forgive the language, the crap that they do when they're really stuck in those fears and concerns or the, the positive things that they want to do. And what people people just go, wow, you know, the, the overwhelming feeling in this group process is one of shared humanity, you know, both my loves and my fears are generally speaking shared. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're a little bit different. And that's interesting too because suddenly I've learned that this really irritating behaviour that my colleague is doing comes out of something. It's not just because they're evil. You know, it comes out of a way of viewing the world or a particular fear or approach that if I can step inside that, I've got a much better sense of what their core needs are and how I might address those. So to come back to the intervention, the process was one session around individual matrix, one session of sort of more a collective identity, what do we really care about? And then you can use the core design principles to kind of direct attention, if you like. We are talking about that earlier, the importance of where you pay attention determines the success of the group. It's basically the selection conditions. Um, and so the point, the, the core design principles are kind of like, okay, we need to pay attention now. We've paid attention to shared purpose, but we also, if we're going to actually implement our goals, we also need to pay attention to equity. We need to pay attention to how we make decisions together, et cetera, et cetera. So... And again, you can use the Collective Act matrix to explore those questions. So you can put up, you know, what is it about inclusive decision-making that really matters to us? Mm. What gets in the way of us doing it? You know, what shows up? And like if I can just use that as an example, oftentimes in hierarchical organisations, for managers, they're afraid of inclusive decision-making because they think they're going to lose control and they'll be accountable for stuff that, they had no control over, which is a fair enough concern. The people in the teams are ter- are really don't want it because it's going to take too long and they have to, you know, 
become educated on stuff that was is time consuming and so forth, or maybe they'll make a, the wrong decision and then they're held to account for etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So these fears are real and they mm. come out of sensible places and they need to be talked about. Otherwise, they're not going to actually be able to implement the principles effectively. Um, but in this process with the school, for instance, what was really key and what I think probably made quite a bit of difference was for the teams to start setting some collective goals together and then to monitor <clears throat> those goals over a number of weeks. And, you know, it's pretty basic stuff for psychologists. We're often uh, helping our clients to set goals and, and then tracking how they do on those goals. But it's something that the groups are often – you know, too busy to do and there's the world is changing too quickly for them to be able to think about things in terms of intentions and then monitoring how successfully they're moving towards the intentions. I want to say that I don't see goal setting as kind of like um, this sort of rigid process of this is my performance outcome that I'm going to try and hit. Yeah. I see it much more as a learning process, like a learning cycle if you like. So with groups you're often sort of trying to get a sense of what could you do first in the short to medium term? How could you track how well that works? How could you learn from it? Um, that's that's what I think of as goal setting. But you have to be doing that stuff. Otherwise, it's just all talk. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's almost like a bit of an art form. I, I remember when I went to one of my placements uh, a long time ago now, um, uh, there was a gentleman uh, who was uh, – I suppose, in charge of the eating disorders unit in, in um, here in Cameron Woden. I think he might even still be there, Paul White. Mm-hmm. Um, what an amazing manager he is. <laughs> uh, and th- th- this was really lovely because, you know, I was, I was early to, to the whole sort of space and um, this kind of collaborative conversation, putting everything on the table, giving people – uh, an opportunity to express themselves and, 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 and foster an environment where we all trust uh, that whatever we say will be respected and considered. Um, and you could almost see, at least for me, I don't know how the others were taking it, but I, I could almost see times when as a group we were clearly going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Right? And I'm sure he would have seen it from a mile away because he's got a ton of experience. But he just let it go mm. right? and let, let that process occur. But after we came around and re- recognised that it's not working, we would have that shared uh, appreciation that it doesn't work because we've all tried that. We all agreed on that and now we mm. agree that it doesn't work. Uh, and so there's this kind of adoption of, you know, a shared belief system or meaning or why we're doing it in, in, in a particular way. But there's an art form to this. It takes lots of time. There were, uh, you know, there, there were lots of meetings that, that, that we had, all this regularity of them. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Paul White, if you're listening, um, you did an amazing job. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot to be said about, you know, what managers, you know, and, 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 and not only that, uh, actually let me rephrase that, what all of us can do as part of a team to foster that, you know, whether mm. you're a manager or whether you're, you know, a you know, a senior executive or the HR or whether you're, whatever position, right, whatever role you, you act for you to have your uh, 
say or your voice or to provide feedback, you know, and because as you say, the, 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 these, this is an organism that works together, mm. um, you know, that hopefully isn't uh, tethered by, um, you know, fear, mm. uh, but rather works together and, 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 and shares that space. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great example of um, of giving the space, isn't it, to individuals to express themselves and then to, to form into a collective. So that 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 um, piece that I outlined there with the school is kind of our vanilla version, if you like. Sure, it's, it's the sure. version I write about, we wrote about in the book, um, individual matrix, collective matrix, core design principle conversations, and then goal setting and tracking over time. But I wanted to share with you a couple of other examples of interesting examples of how it's being used. One is um, a group that we're just getting started now. It's a um, European Social Research Council funded grant in the UK. And what we're doing is bringing together a whole bunch of civil society groups, university academics, local councils, um, transition network and other environmental groups and so forth. And they're coming onto the pro-social facilitator training that I do. I should back up a little and just explain. I teach this method. Um, You can get online, uh, prosocialinstitute.org, and you'll see uh, connections to the pro-social facilitator training. Um, It's a 10-week course. It's got... uh, a fair bit of online content, but most of it is about discussion and practice and really diving into these ideas. Well, we're doing a 10-week course like that for these civil society groups and um, around sustainability. And what I'm finding really interesting about this is instead of a bunch of individuals coming together to have the conversation, we've got 10 different teams, really some pretty high-powered folks coming along, and they're each... um, going to be working internally within their teams to help improve and implement pro-social, but they're also going to be having conversations across the teams as well. So that's another kind of form of intervention process is to um, take pre-existing groups and to get them having conversations that matter across groups, if you see what I mean. So we're really interested in trying to... Very powerful. Yeah, I mean, this is the missing link in a way. There's there's a million team development methodologies around for individual teams, but there's very little in the space of groups of groups. Mm. How do mm. we actually get groups to cooperate across boundaries between us and them, you know, and just look at our political discourse <laughs> about how we need that? It's so much easier to um, ignore the humanity of the other in another group, an entirely different group. So the groups of groups issue is one that really excites me and this is where I think pro-social has such um, phenomenal potential. The other kind of broad approach that is interesting to me is um, doing some work in Bhutan of all places. We're going to Bhutan in April and we'll be working with the um, senior figures in the in the public service there and the civil service there to basically develop a five-year strategic plan and they called me because they were particularly interested in creating a more pro-social society and so how can these principles be applied at the level of the entire society if you like and that's the conversation that we're going to be having over a five-year period over over developing a strategic plan for the five-year period 
So there's lots of ways that you can apply pro-social. It must be very exciting for you to, to see this sort of work starting to effectively shape policy, right, to, to that where, where governments, organisations, large companies, people who are in power to start asking, uh, you know, this harder question, you know, mm-hmm. how can we do this better for all yeah. of us, not just for those in power or, you know, um, you know, to, to, to capture more resources, you know, mm-hmm. how can we spread the resource? How can we do this better so that we, we, we have a, all have a better quality of life? Yeah, it's annoying. I mean, as you were saying that, I, and wow. as I was saying it, I was just so excited by the possibility. And of course, it's not just us alone. This is bubbling up everywhere. The whole move towards more participatory democracy. There are conversations in dozens, hundreds, thousands of organisations about how we can shape policy um, to take into account what we actually care about as opposed to just money <laughs> and consumption. I'd say what I. Um uh, sat through one of your lectures or workshops at the ACBS conference, um, and we're talking about obviously this and trying to you know do it as a collective and 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 some of those things. Uh, and obviously, it was only a you know a short morning, so so to speak. But I took some of those things into you know, our team here, and I think it's been you know uh, transformational. Um, there's there, there, there's a lot to be said about what you can learn from you know. Uh, just spending a little bit of time, you know, on those eight, eight you know, uh, concepts, if you will, um, or, or contributors to, to pro-social. Uh, and even though, you know, it would have been or continues probably to be a fairly clumsy application of it, the fact that we're applying it means that that feedback loop is occurring, yeah. you know. We, we, we're teaching one another how we want to be. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that the conversation's there, you know, at all, you know, is is testament that, you know, it's, it, it's the group. Um, so I think, you know, your, your, your workshops, um, you know, I've only had a taster, but, but – um, yeah, has a lot of you know merit and and value. How can people find out about you know the the training that you currently do? Um, you know maybe how people can find out about your book, where they can get the book, mm-hmm. you know, to to learn more and start to think about it. You know whether it's at their you know community level. Um, uh, you know wh- whether it's about advocating for. Uh, playgrounds, you know, near, near themselves and how community can do that better or, you know, more, more easily or whether it be, you know, at that very, very, you know, high end of, of you know, maybe government departments or large companies or, um, you know, important uh, topics like climate change and the like. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Nish. Um, so there are, there are lots of ways to go forward. One, the, probably the, one of the easiest is to buy the book. If you just Google ProSocial and Paul Atkins, one of the top links will be um, uh, a link to one of your favourite booksellers. It's available everywhere. But you can also go to our, our website for our whole initiative, which is www.prosocial.world, W-O-R-L-D. Um, and from there, you'll find links to both the facilitator training and also the book. Once you've done the facilitator training, we have a, a community of practice. We're just in the middle of developing a new platform that's going to um, basically give um, anybody a whole bunch of tools to help implement more effective groups uh, together. So people will be able to join the community. They'll be able to download, you know, guides around the ACT matrix or the core design principles and they'll 
be helped through the process, if you like, of implementing pro-social in their groups. Get involved in the community and we have a regular monthly newsletter that we produce which is updating people on on what's happening. We've been in the process of being uh, developing a sort of version 1.0 of our platform. We're about to introduce a version 2.0 which is really going to um, put uh, some of these tools into a new space that, that's going to make them super useful for people and readily available. But start with reading about the idea in the in the book and maybe explore the facilitator training if it's something you feel like you'd like to um, lead groups in a more pro-social way, lead groups towards more collective, effective collective action, then um, certainly love to hear from you. There are two websites that I've mentioned. One is prosocial.world and the other is prosocialinstitute.org. Basically the prosocial institute is kind of the training arm of our bigger effort which we're calling prosocial.world. On the Prosocial Institute page, you can book an appointment with me, um, happy to talk to people about their needs, and there's a, a, just a space there where you can book in a short conversation and we can chat about what your needs are. So probably best to start with those two websites. Yeah, brilliant. Very generous as well of, 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 of you. I think the book is probably a great place to, to start. And I'm assuming you said, you know, all good booksellers, that's Amazon and, and, and It's you pretty know. widely available, yeah. I mean, if you go to the website and uh, you can click on a link there and it'll take you to the Amazon site in whatever country you're in. But, of course, lots of other places sell it as well. I think this whole concept is 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 uh, well overdue um, to to put it on paper, and and I know this isn't obviously the first time it's been explored. This is an extension of you know some great work from Lynn and many others, and and putting in you know evolutionary work and biology and so on and so forth. But you know what a beautiful package uh, that that we can all kind of at least use as a uh, as a flexible skeleton to, to start this conversation and evolve it even even further so yeah love your work paul i think it's just um uh, bloody awesome <laughs> <laughs> truly australian way to end an interview thank you Nish. i appreciate it it's been a real delight talking with you i've actually found this I'm going to go back and listen to this conversation because I've come up with a bunch of new ideas just chatting with you. So it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, hopefully I can get you back back, back on the show at some point, maybe with a bit of an update of, as to some of the you know work that you've done to date and maybe hear about how you know your work in Bhutan has, has gone. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Nish. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.